friends, it's time to drop the needle on another episode of Supersonic Chat. This is the music podcast full of debate, jousts, and thought experiments. We do it all in the name of entertainment. My name is Adrian Warhope. And I'm Leon Leroux. Adrian, as the keeper of the questions and the crafter of the conundrums for this super chat of ours, where we wrangle with all things Sonic, what chaotic, sexy, 80s, fluoro-clad, heartfelt, jazz-inspired, sweaty, slippery hip thrusting ideas have we been grappling with this week my handsome friend leon in a recent <laughs> episode that we called saxophobia slash saxotherapy you played the role of my therapist and as i lay on your yeah. couch we delved into my aversion to the saxophone and we made some really good progress but like any good professional course of action, some medical mm. uh, course of action, we have scheduled a follow-up. Mm. We've sought a second opinion with a trained oh, specialist. Yeah. And in this oh, episode, yeah. it's our honor and privilege to be chatting with Mr. Kirk Hamilton, who dials in all the way from oh, Portland, Oregon. Yes. Well, we are so lucky to get the opportunity to speak with the maker of Strong Songs. Amazing podcast. Yeah, there is not many podcasts that I eagerly await the release of a new episode and listen to it that same day, but Strong Songs is definitely one of those few. Yeah. You know, the way he pulls apart a song and opens my ears to sounds that I've never noticed in even in songs that I've heard for decades. Yeah. Is incredible. Like yeah. Kirk Hamilton plays so many instruments and can recreate an entire song piece bit by bit and allow you to hear the layers and make you aware of the musical intention so of the good. artist. Yeah. 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 And, and, and to have him here on our show and revisit the wonderful world of saxophone. I can't, I'm so excited. Yeah. And, and no one, no one is um, more qualified or better to come <laughs> yeah. and give us yes. a sought after second opinion on the saxophone. Yep. Cause Kirk Amazing. is, a, is yep. a trained jazz musician He's a man whose mm. musical knowledge and knowledge of popular music is exquisite. And, and mm. of course, he's the guy that helms one of our absolute favorite podcasts, Strong Songs. And seriously, if you have not listened to Strong Songs, do yourself a favor. I blame him slash praise him, attribute <laughs> to him yeah. my recent Steely Dan obsession. Yep, yep. From his episode uh, on the song Babylon Sisters. But yes, it's, look, yes. look, without further ado, Let's get into our lovely chat, our follow-up to Saxotherapy with Mr. Kirk Hamilton. Friends, it's our honor and privilege to welcome our very special guest to the show, Mr. Kirk Hamilton. Kirk, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so so part two of our sax episode, we'll get to that. But as always, we love to um, shortcut, the best shortcut to get to know people, to know our guests, <laughs> is to ask them, just hit us with your top five albums of all time. Just a little easy question. What's your top sure. five albums of all time? This is an impossible question. I couldn't <laughs> possibly list five albums. I think That's six. why it's a good I, question. I, I, I can go with five or I can go with six. Hit us so, with um, six. <laughs> It's totally, I mean, it is just straight up impossible. I couldn't pick five in one style of music, but I yep. picked five. I think I've talked about all of these on Strong Songs. They're all kind of albums that I've come to appreciate lately. So the first one is Steely Dan, Asia from 1977. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the I would say, so I did an episode on Babylon Sisters from Gaucho, which is from 1980. That was kind of their last yeah. studio record before they took an extended hiatus and then came back with Two Against Nature. Also an amazing album. But, Turned Adrian's um, this opinion one I would on say, that one. Yeah, I blame uh, you, Kirk, for my Steely Dan obsession <laughs> after listening to that episode. Continue. I'm happy to get people into Steely Dan, and especially because Gaucho is a cool record, but I really like Babylon Sisters, and I wanted to talk about Bernard Purdy's drumming, because mm. his groove on that, that Purdy shuffle is Purdy so shuffle. famous. Yeah. But Asia, I would say, is the stronger album. It's not like a controversial opinion, really. No. Asia is an amazing album. Yep. The title track has Wayne Shorter playing saxophone, which is kind of wild, just that they got him to show up and some jazz stuff while Steve Smith played ridiculous drum fills. But it's an incredible album. I mean, it's also got a pretty shuffle on it. 
Um, and it's got all kinds of other stuff. I mean, an amazing band. It's kind of the peak of that band's run in the 70s. So yep. that's the first one, Steely Dan, Asia. Love it. Yeah. Second one, Cannibal Adderley, Mercy, 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 Live at the Club. pick Whoa. a jazz record and you know i mean uh, i could have picked whatever kind of blue or some yeah. of the, the famous giant steps some of the famous uh 50s records but this is from 1966 this is cannibal latterly alto saxophonist one of the greatest saxophone players who ever lived this record i'm picking partly because i think maybe your listeners would just dig it because it's a funky groovy soulful record nice. it's um actually not recorded live at a club this club, I, I can't remember the name of the club, but it was a friend of Cannibal Adderley's wanted them to say it was recorded at a club. Right. And it sounds <laughs> like it was recorded at a club because there's a really boisterous audience. They're losing their minds through the whole recording. But it was actually recorded in a recording studio. I love it. And they so brought in they, people. I think they had. Right. So they just added yeah. like a laugh track in a sitcom or something. Well, kind of, only it's not a laugh track. It's a real audience, and they're in the room with them. So I think they had an open bar, so everyone's kind of drinking and having a good time. And then they do, like, this is, I think this was the first recording of Mercy, 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 the Joe Zavanul tune. And it's just, I mean, the intro where Cannonball is introing the song is this legendary thing where he's talking about, this is what you've, sometimes it's what you got to say to life is mercy, mercy. And everyone's yelling, yeah. I love it. Imagine being part of of that little private audience. Oh, my God. Sometimes we're not prepared for adversity. When it happens, sometimes we're caught short. We don't know exactly how to handle it when it comes up. Sometimes we don't know just what to do when adversity takes over. (laughs) And uh, I have advice for all of us. I got it from our pianist, Joe Zabinu, who wrote this tune. And it sounds like what you're supposed to say when you have that kind of problem. It's called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. Yeah, and so putting that on, turning it up, makes you kind of feel like you are in that audience, which is great. So, number two. Number three, an album I have not talked about on Strong Songs and is kind of stylistically different than a lot of what I talk about, and that's why I picked it, and that is the Mars Volta Deloused in the Cone oh, from yes. 2003. You guys know this record? Yes, Kirk, I Always coming out of left do. field. I love it. Yep. Brilliant. Yeah. This is one of my favorite records of all time. I was really challenged by it the first time I listened to it. Anyone who doesn't know, this is kind of art rock from ex-members of At The Mm Drive-In, really aggressive experimental stuff, though I guess Flea is on this record for Shanti. John Theodore is playing drums on this record, an absolute monster. Um, And so it's kind of like Prague, I don't know, post screamo post it's, yeah. it's definitely not it. music for people with short attention spans no it's really really advanced and intense and yes. the first time i heard it a, a buddy of mine who would always tell me about new music shortly after music school was like dude you got to check this band out and i listened to at the drive-in and they weren't totally my speed and then i listened to this and it wasn't totally my speed it's really really intense omar mm. um, rodriguez lopez is that his name or cedric bixler i guess he's the yep. lead singer cedric yep. is yeah. the lead singer his voice, he's just, it's like, he actually kind of sounds like Bjork. He has a kind of Bjork energy. Yeah, I get that. Singing. Yeah, it's okay. It's a bit of phrasing similarity. Yep. And like, I heard this oh. and it's just, I mean, it's, like, just like, everything is totally ridiculous. And I, it was a, way too much for me to handle, but I made myself stick with it. And I listened to it again and again. And by the third time I started kind of de- deprogramming some of it, decoding it, getting mm. it into my ear. And then eventually I just found it to be this endlessly rewarding album to listen to and I still listen to it and I still hear new things whenever I listen to it so it's kind of the album that taught me that sometimes the most challenging albums are the ones that really stick with you and that it can be worth Mm. sticking with something that you find kind Mm. of kind of difficult at first so Mars Volta, D. Lost in the Auditorium. next 
Fleetwood Mac rumors. Come this on. is an easy one. This is just one of the, <laughs> one of the greatest albums ever. Yeah. Um, I did an episode two parter on uh, on the chain and dreams, both from this album. Spent a long time listening to it, and this is just one of those albums that sounds like a greatest hits album, even though it's yeah. not. Every single song on it, except maybe one, is just an all timer. Um, you'll have to. People will just have to guess which one. All right. <laughs> okay. uh, we'll let that one hang. We'll I don't even hang. know if I think that's true. Okay. It's a great record, though, and just I could listen to it endlessly. It's it's so good. And then the interpersonal drama that kind of fueled this album is very interesting. I think there's a lot of heartbreak on this record, even though, I mean, it's I guess heartbreak can be beautiful, but there's mm. just a lot of sadness in it, and they really just left it all in the studio, and you can hear that. Um, I think that Dreams, just Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, the way that they she sings and he answers her vocal phrases, and it's you know the end of their relationship, and it's just mm. it's amazing stuff. I mean, it's just beautiful, and his guitar playing on that tune is beautiful in general. Rumors, amazing album. And then the last one, I guess, I guess the last one, even though I have a bonus, but the last one is Aretha Franklin, Young, Gifted, and Black from 1972. Okay. I recently mm. did an episode about funk drumming, and speaking of Bernard Purdy, we talked about Bernard Purdy's playing on this, on Rock Steady. He has this drum breakaway that was just this iconic moment. This band is totally nuts. I mean, everybody on this album is amazing. Uh, Donny Hathaway is like playing keys on it. Dr. John is playing percussion. Wow. It's just a totally killer record. It's hard to pick a best Aretha Franklin record. Like that's basically impossible. Yeah. But yeah. it's a pretty good one. So last one is Young, Gifted, and Black. Everyone should know that record and listen to it. Super good. And then also Carole King Tapestry. Perfect album. Ah, yes. I did it. Snuck it in. Snuck in my <laughs> okay. That's another one of those perfect albums. But I just wanted to pick it because Carole King is... Is the best. So brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Oh, that's great. Well, and I, I love to hear that there's so much variety in there as well. But then also ones that are, I guess, historically important as well. So mm. it's a great selection. Yeah, I guess I kind of leaned that way. There are so many modern records that I dig too, though I yeah. always feel a little out of my element with modern music. And Strong Songs is typically, you know, a lot of what I talk about is a little bit older. Though sometimes I'll talk about newer stuff or especially in Q&A episodes but mm. but a lot of it is older stuff and I just feel like it's a little easier to canonize older records yeah. just because time has passed we've really yeah. digested them they've stood the test of time yeah and I just have a kind of stronger take on them where with newer stuff I still don't know how I feel about records that I first yeah. heard 10 years ago you know? <laughs> yeah and yeah as fad and fashion passes and and, and lessens its influence mm -hmm. you know it's the test of time stands true that's interesting it's true and kind of the fashion part of it is a really essential part of music. I've been thinking mm. about this a lot lately. Mm. Um, I think sometimes people will say, oh, man, this thing isn't about the music. It's about the scene. Like, it's yeah. about the fashion. It's about who's mm -hmm. there and the celebrity of it all. And, like, I get that complaint, especially from musicians, where people, mm. you know, they, they want to focus on the music. They want it to be about innovation and harmony and interesting ideas and whatever, that kind of thing. But I do think that the the fashion and the presence and the personality that is part of music because music is also this like gathering thing. It's this live performance where we all come together and everyone yep. is like sees one another and experiences it together. And yep. part of that is the sort of, I don't know, like the, Tribal the master of ceremony as well. Yeah. yeah. The person who gets up there and can do that. And, and that's like part of the power of fashion. So yeah. it is but true also, that when it, we get farther. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, but also um, it, it can encapsulate a, a moment in time, like through that kind of Definitely, jumping yeah. on the idea of, of fashion and, and what is popular at a particular time. Sometimes it's actually quite nice and nostalgic to go back and go, oh, yeah, that was a really nice snippet <laughs> in time. Yeah. And, and it's it feels it feels separate from the music in a way that it doesn't always in a modern context when it's a really 
going concern. When you're looking at someone and their whole look, their whole vibe, everything about it, and the music is this entire energy that they're embodying. And it's this current energy that's kind of grabbing you and telling you to feel something or want to be part of something or feel alienated from something. Where yes. when you look back at, you know, a, a punk record from the 80s or a jazz record from the 60s and you see maybe a video of what they're playing, of their what they're wearing when they're playing, yeah. it just doesn't feel that related to the music. And then also, no. most of the time we just listen to that stuff. We don't even, a lot of people don't even know what those, like the people that I just listed, they wouldn't know them if they saw a picture of them. I wouldn't know. Yeah. You know, if I saw a picture of Joe Zavanul, the keyboardist for Cannibal Utterly, I think I'd be able to pick him out. Like I kind of know what he looks like. But you know, it's the visual is not the thing that I associate yeah. with Joe Zavanul. But if no. I heard a recording of Joe Zavanul, I'd know immediately that it was him. Yes. So the music just becomes, it stands on its own more as we get further and further away from it. Let me tie this back in because I think that the sax suffered at some point along the way, being symptomatic of fashion <laughs> and style and had an era mm. there where I came awake to it and went nah and it hurt me it hurt me deep a long time right anyway. yeah. yeah i so i listened to your conversation about the saxophone i thought it was really interesting just because i mean i think you would probably agree that by the end it sounded like your take was less that you dislike the saxophone and more that you dislike some saxophone and the saxophone when it was <laughs> used poorly or um it, you know kind of inserted inappropriately into a song which could be said of a lot of different instruments. So I think you you guys were right to identify that saxophone is a very strong ingredient. And yeah. so when it's misused, it's like, whoa, there's you know a bunch of coriander in this <laughs> recipe to, to exactly. use your language for it. Well, and, um, and as a dedicated listener of Strong Songs, I'm all about your credentials. I know I've been listening to what you do and what you play and, and all that sort of stuff. But for our listeners, they may not uh, know anything about you and your expertise in saxology sure, probably so not. tell us all about what you you know what did you study or where did you study or you know what did you what bands did you perform in or tell us about sure. yourself uh, as a expert for our show today <laughs> oh man it's always dangerous to be described as an expert i would not describe <laughs> myself as an expert i'm someone who plays a lot has played a lot of sax come on you're such a multi-instrumentalist yeah, it's just expertise is i don't know it's a dangerous word but yeah i i am a saxophonist i went to school for saxophone and that was my first instrument though these days i play a lot of different things so i make a podcast called strong songs which i have referred to as a music podcast where i sort of analyze different songs that are strong and explain why they're good and spend a lot of time recreating the recordings which is a really informative process for me actually well, especially as a you know well, I, would, I hope so. That's uh, it's yeah. kind of like my educational process then translates into the show. Yeah, right? because I, um, um, I've for just personally, I hear so many other things that I had never heard on songs that I've listened to for 20, great. 25 years. And suddenly an awareness of a, a whole new musical <laughs> element just it just jumps right out. I mean, you, you were mentioning Björk the, just, you know, in relation to the Mars Volta. Mm -hmm. Whenever I whenever I hear um, hyper ballad now, I'm always thinking oh, about the types so. of how the the musical choice makes you feel like you really are standing on top of a mountain. And I, I guess I've felt that before, but I'm quite consciously aware now when I listen of what the music is doing to make you feel like that, and it's just amazing. That's awesome. Well, that makes me very happy. That's the goal of the show, and that. Like that process is also a process that I go through. I mean, I knew Hyperballad yeah. before I made that episode, yeah. but then I sat down and was like, oh, so that's a snare drum. Okay, so they're doing a brushed snare drum, but then it's looping and there's this, and I'm starting to figure out, oh, this this kind of really cool airy sound and like figuring out how to describe it actually teaches me what's happening as well. There are so many songs on that show where I guess it'll sound like I'm coming in being like, yeah, here's all this stuff. But I just, sometimes I just heard that stuff for the first time when I was beginning yeah. on the episode. Cause mm -hmm. I'm the same way. I hear a song a million times. Then I sit down and really transcribe it and realize, oh, whoa, the bass is doing this thing. I didn't even ever realize yeah. uh, that it was doing and, and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I, so I studied jazz saxophonist. I went to the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida which is a pretty mega jazz education department in uh, the United States. So there's kind of this handful of schools, Manhattan School of Music, New England Conservatory, North Texas, Berklee College of Music, uh, I guess Juilliard now, Eastman. There's, there are a bunch more. It's kind of more common now. But when I went to school, which was in right around the turn of the century, it was one of the, you know, 
hotshot jazz schools. And it was a very intense experience going to school there. I thought I was mm. good at saxophone when I was in a high school. A picture of the movie Whiplash. And... Is, that, is that an accurate depiction there, Kirk? No, I can't stand that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I, I, I went on a different show. Maybe I'll find a link and send it to you guys. If people want to hear my take on Whiplash, I went on a podcast once and just talked for like an hour and a half. About oh, okay. it. There are some similarities. It was oh, an God. intense school. I did have one teacher who was pretty a pretty big hard ass, but no, there's no physical abuse. And the way that that guy directed his band was ridiculous. Um, but but it is intense. I mean, it yeah. was yeah. a very, you know, I just played saxophone all day for four years and I got wow. pretty good. And, um, you know, graduated from school, moved out to the West Coast, was playing sax, playing in a diff- bunch of different groups, doing some like, you know, getting hired for various bands. Um, nobody's super famous. I guess I played with Petula Clark, who sang mm. on broad, or she sang downtown. Yeah. And uh, uh, Connie Francis was pretty fun, where the boys are. So I got to do some kind of like old dame singers, like yep. kind of last generation singers, which were just fun because people came out and were excited. So I don't know, played in a bunch of like local rock bands and, mm. and in my own in my own stuff as well. And then a million jazz casuals. And in the process of doing that, kind of realized that I, as much as I love jazz music, and I loved playing saxophone. That wasn't really where my heart was at. I was getting more and more into singing and writing songs and, mm-hmm. and rock and roll and, mm-hmm. you know, funk music and all kinds of different, you know, styles of music. There was so much going on. I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. So much going on with, like, jazz hip-hop in that scene. And I'm certainly not any kind of a rapper or anything, but I was mm-hmm. really just drawn in by the use of jazz and other styles of music. Oh, yeah. So I started learning guitar. I wanted to write music. I started a rock band. I kind of just got diverted from being a jazz saxophonist and uh, and then wound up learning a bunch of different instruments over the years, was taught for a long time at a school, um, then wrote about video games for a living for like seven years, and that was just sort of a weird career left wow. turn, and then got back into, into music stuff and started making strong songs in 2018. And at this point, play, you know, every, I mean, my main instrument that I practice is guitar, but kind of play everything and still play a lot of saxophone. It's still nearest and dearest to my heart. It was my mm. first instrument and still the one that I think that most people would probably pay me to play. So yeah, that's my musical background in a nutshell. Holy hell. You, you are a man who is educated, but also follows his curiosity. <laughs> and I love that. Like just follows his curiosity and just goes further down the rabbit trail. We love it. That's, very, very yeah, cool. That's, that's definitely the way I've done it. It's worked out, I guess. Um, it, it seemed... It sometimes seemed like it wouldn't, or I wasn't ever sure, but I just kind of had to go with whatever was inspiring me at the time. Hey, Kirk, we love what you do. Hence why we've called you on as yes. the expert, uh, in, in in air quotes, as the <laughs> resident um, advisor, we will say, the, the person that can bring some, some a professional perspective because – you know, I think I got hurt when I was a kid in the 80s by some by some um, unfortunate sacks. I blame Careless Whisper. I blame Spandau Ballet. And we covered this in part one of our of our sax therapy session, where I think Leon took me from um, avoidance to tolerance, you know, and we identified mm-hmm. that it was probably some unfortunate use of sax rather than the sax as an instrument that I was a- averted to. And I've come around and there was and there were some recent examples of mainly Sydney Australian um, indie bands that had kind of turned me back onto the sax cousin mm-hmm. Tony's brand new firebird party dozen, etc. Um, very, very unknown, but I was like, there's something here. So we have called you in for part two of our two-step therapy mm-hmm. process to, I guess, bring me back to from, from tolerance to some scale of love or appreciation of the sax. So, you know, I guess we love sax in jazz and we love sax in an orchestra setting, but got lost along the way in the eighties. So how do you, as a saxophone appreciator, um, how do you separate yourself from that hip thrusting cliched, predictable <laughs> sax solo of the past? Or do you kind of embrace all of that? Is that just part of the saxophone? What, what, tell us more. I think it depends on the style of music that you're playing. I do think that the hip thrusting yeah, reverb drenched, you know, synthesized <laughs> backed saxophone solo yeah. is back in fashion. Ah. I think the rise of synthwave music. Yep. I don't know if you guys have heard that band, The Midnight. No. But they, it's just mm. full on. I mean, it just sounds like neon lights, 1985. You're just in yeah, the cyberpunk man. city, and here comes the sax solo. And it's perfect. Okay. It sounds 
it sounds like your memory of a perfect saxophone solo. I actually love that Steve Gregory on Careless Whisper. I love that solo. Um, so that I think of that actually that and um, Ravenscroft solo on Baker Street are yeah. kind of the two peak sort of yes. saxophone solos. I think those are both great solos. <laughs> yeah. Some of the other ones, there was one, I'm trying to remember what it was. There was there was one you guys were listening to that was kind of just like not a good solo. Like sometimes there were sax solos in the 80s that were just kind of, the tone isn't really there. They're not playing anything super strong. It's a little like they brought in a player and they just were like, I don't know, play something. Yeah. And then you get a, yeah, kind of half-assed solo that just doesn't really do that much for you or doesn't really work. Yeah, but I guess and that's then it the same on any instrument, right? Shoehorn. You could have like a, a guitar solo that just yes. falls flat just because somebody's absolutely. just twiddling for the sake of it. Mm. Yes, and that, that is absolutely true, um, especially when it comes to like lead guitar solos, which I have a whole take on that. I think that the lead guitar solo has had a very similar trajectory mm. to the saxophone solo, just sort yeah, of I would agree. generation or something pushed a little bit later. Um, so I, yeah. I think the style of music really matters. And I think you guys identified that really well. I was, I was telling you off mic before we started recording. There were a lot of bands I'd never heard of. I'm not super up, obviously, on uh, indie music in Sydney, Australia, but also I'm not super up on a lot of modern music. It's just impossible so to keep much. track of every Oh, yeah. There's too much. And there are so many bands now that are doing really cool things with saxophone and making the sax fundamental to their sound. Morphine is a great example of mm. a slightly older oh, yeah. band that's doing so much cool stuff yep. with the sound and has made it essential to the sound of the band without treating it in that kind of classic way where the saxophone is the thing that comes forward and plays when there can no longer be words to express the feelings of the lead singer <laughs> the saxophone steps up and just wails out some high notes. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is Clarence Clemens from the E Street Band mm. is probably the quintessential example of this. Like this is when Bruce Springsteen is going off and the band is rocking so hard and then finally the big man steps up and just blows the saxophone. If you've ever seen that happen live, that's it's like a nuclear bomb goes off on stage. <sighs> like the amount of energy wow. that explodes off the stage. Because of the way the sax is used there. And yeah. that's kind of the classic lineage of the sax solo. Going back through the 60s, you know, so many classic 60s rock and roll songs, that's what the sax would do, is it would come up and it's kind of the, you know, if it's a love song, if it's a song about lust and whatever, the sax is kind of the unofficial mm. instrument of sex. Mm. Like, it's the thing that comes up and just, yeah. like, explodes all over everything <laughs> in the middle <laughs> of the song. That sounds kind of graphic, yes, but that's yes, what it does. Yes. I'm kind of I'm kind of curious why you think that, that that it is like that. I mean, it's not just the name, sax. You know, it's can't just be that. It's it's got to no. be there's got to be something about it. I mean, I sort of reckon that that there's something vocal about the saxophone. Perhaps I don't yes. know what is it about the sax that makes it so sexy. I think that's I think that's it. It's certainly not the name. So the name, if anyone here doesn't know, is from Adolf Sachs, the inventor yeah. who invented it yeah. in the mid nineteenth century, um, and uh, he invented a lot of things. There's like the saxophone. He was a he was yeah. a go getter. That Adolf Sachs. What a he, mad he really kind of yep. Yeah, he was an interesting cat. So no, I think that you're correct, Leon. That it is it is a uh, a vocal issue. It's that it sounds like a human voice. Um, I think the sax was used the way that it was in part because. There was already a sax section in big bands and in jazz bands. You know, a dance band leading into the 1960s through the 40s and 50s would typically have a sax player. That wasn't an unusual thing for, you know, a singer, hmm. bass, drums, maybe guitar, piano. And then there'd be a sax player and they would be playing solos. And that's kind of what it grew out of. And so that format kind of stayed put even as rock and roll got harder and more rocking. The saxophone still was kind of finding a place as that solo instrument. Hmm. And specifically the tenor saxophone. Hmm is the one mm. that's primarily the sound of rock and roll. And it's that, yep. you know, you can play it. I'll demonstrate this for you guys a little later. But it's when you vocalize through a tenor saxophone, the, the range is really similar to a male tenor range. It has a vocal quality because the number of overtones in the sound. And then when you're going through the horn, it sounds like someone's screaming. That yeah. like, yeah, you know, that yeah, sound, yeah. it just has this 
guttural scream. Yeah. And I mean, if you listen to Coltrane as well, Coltrane can scream uh, through his horn. Pharaoh wild. Sanders can scream through his horn. Yeah. So you get this really vocal quality, and that gives it this, it's a really sensual sound. It's not always that hot, you know, burning, angry sax that can mm. come out. It can also be so, you know, smoky delicate. And, and kind of sensual and delicate and intimate. And it, it has those qualities. And I think that can make it just such a very sensual instrument that it makes sense that it's also thought of as a sexual one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Very interesting. Um, so as as a young man, like I was, when I was you know eleven or twelve or something, I started playing sax as well, and I was just in. I just thought, of course, I'm going to play the saxophone. This is this is the instrument for me. Because <laughs> it was and, very and, similar. Yeah, and and it began for me with an owl on Sesame Street, and then who played the sax? And I thought this is the coolest dude on the entire on the entirety of Sesame Street. <laughs> he was cool. And then and then it was that was solidified by Lisa Simpson, who's this intelligent, thoughtful character who plays the sax. And and mm-hmm. I, although I wasn't as bold, bold as her to adventure to a baritone, I picked my alto because I was a short young man, and I thought, yeah, I better just get an instrument that's sized to me. Tell us the story about how you. <laughs> fell in love with the sax yeah i started on alto too lisa simpson plays baritone sax without a mm. neck strap that's how tough lisa simpson is <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's throws that thing around. she's a <laughs> weapon. Oh. Yep. yeah yeah i love um i love that lisa plays the berry sax that's like the coolest instrument that a kid her age could possibly play and so, <laughs> yeah, so true you know just because lisa simpson is of course the coolest member of the simpson family yes um so uh, I started in a similar way, actually. It was in fifth grade. Uh, in our in the music classes that we had, we had to learn recorder, mm. which was a thing. Oh, it was kind yes, of a standardized thing. It, okay, maybe it's maybe it's standardized around the world, but it's kind of like okay, we're gonna give you the worst sounding <laughs> instrument for a beginner, <laughs> the aside parents. from the violin. <laughs> yep. and yeah. you're all gonna play it together, and we're gonna we're gonna enjoy that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what fifth grade was for a lot of Come us. Come along so they to listen, parents. We're all, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh. Like, good, enjoy hell for the next six months. Um, so I was learning a recorder, and there was some sort of a showcase for older students. Or, like, the kids from the older class came, and they showed some of the instruments they played. Because, of course, there were kids taking lessons outside of school, learning piano. Mm-hmm. And this one mm-hmm. kid came. I'm forgetting his name now. I should really find out because I really have kind of my whole career to thank, uh, to thank him for. But he came out and he played alto saxophone. He played something, I don't remember what, uh, just some little piece on the saxophone. But I was sitting here playing the recorder, this little plastic toy. And you're like, what and is look at this, this kid thing? Come out, I want that. Right. With this golden curved saxophone. Oh, and he begins yes. playing it. And I'm like, well, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in yep. my life. That's the instrument yep. that I want to play. So it's kind of a similar yes. thing. And then uh, a couple of years later in seventh grade, that was when we started being able to take band class. And I said, I want to play saxophone. So I started on alto and played alto all through high school and then switched to tenor at some point in high school as I started getting more Mm. serious about it. And mostly play tenor now, though. I love the alto sax and I love the soprano sax, too. I mean, I love the berry, but I don't own one because they're really expensive. Right. But uh, at some point, maybe I'll get a berry sax. Wow. Uh, Talking about the sax, you know, more lately, it's like when you suddenly want to buy a, I don't know, a blue Volvo. (laughs) You see blue Volvos everywhere. I tell you, I've been listening (laughs) to music lately and the sax just keeps popping up. My favorite band of all time at the moment, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, have been incorporating saxophone a lot lately. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I'm so happy we're talking about this. But coming fast, fast forwarding to to, to now, present Mm -hmm. day modern music, what, what sax relevant interesting music are you seeing out there now that you know of man there's so much of it i mean okay so too many zoos is a band that i did i heard i think you guys didn't mention do you know of too many zoos no no so this guy leo pellegrino he goes by leo p Mm -hmm. he plays barry sax in this group and they're kind of a trio and they're from this tradition of music that's the kind of i would call it punk busking jazz yeah I guess. it's okay. a lot of it well in new york i know what you're talking about cool and it's uh, you know it's people who will straight up record their albums on a train in new york city like in the subway wow you know on a train playing it and too many zoos is this way um find their videos if you guys like link one in the show notes anyone listening to this if you haven't heard too many zoos you absolutely have to they'll blow your mind um and leo p is the kind of heart of this band he plays barry sax he is an absolute madman i've never seen someone play barry sax this way (laughs) he can make sounds i've you know i can make some weird sounds on saxophone but there are definitely some sounds that some people can make that i don't know how to do and he is 
he can do a few of them. He'll play. It's basically drum and bass almost. It oh, has yeah. that like. Oh, I think I know. I yes, like he'll kind of do this thing. I know that you've probably seen his videos go viral all the time. People will post it being like, "What is this?" And they're right to ask. He can. He'll do like really low pop and stuff on the on the berry, and then just he can make this sound that's an extremely overblown overtone. That's just like. Like the, the highest thing you've ever heard, and then he can bounce so quickly between the very yeah. bottom of the horn and those sounds yeah, that it just really creates this too. percussive thing. And then they've got a guy playing like a marching bass drum usually, and then a trumpet player, and that's kind of it. And that guy, I mean, the stuff they're doing is so cool, and it's so unproduced. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful stuff, like a morphine is a great example of using the Barry sax really interestingly mm. as a texture in the studio. Colin Stetson mm. is actually another guy who's been around for a while. He's played with a bunch of big bands. He's a great saxophonist. He'll play like bass and berry sax, bass clarinet, those low horns. If you use those in the studio, you can put cool like tape delays and you know phaser modulation and, and other things uh. like that, or harmonizers that kind of create these sound textures with them. What Too Many Zoos does and what the whole busking scene does that's very different is just, it's all live. It's right. just, we're on a train car with a cool. camera phone <laughs> we're just recording it and yeah. like you know and that's that's it and, and all so it's the whatever ambient sounds around get. all the ambient sounds yep. and they're walking well. around people mm. there's people trying to like eat lunch on their way to work and this guy is like <laughs> you know stepping over them wailing on the saxophone he can oh, also man. do like practically do backflips while playing sax so he's very oh, cool wow. and then a related group is moon hooch which is another well-known sort of busking steeped in busking uh, there's two saxes in that wenzel mcgovern and michael wilbur and they're great players as well. And they kind of do a similar thing where they use the saxophone with a lot of interesting textures that are recreated live. The thing they're very famous for doing is they put huge traffic cones into their saxophones, which is also very in, this, in the kind of spirit of busking because yeah. you're yeah. sat on the street and you're like, well, I need something. Yeah. Well, yep. hey, look, there's a yep. traffic awesome. cone. Let's put it in there. And it gives it this whole, whole like really wild sound, especially when you're playing low notes. Yeah, I was going to um, say so that's only another, on the low notes though, right? Because the high notes, all the sound escapes out the, the rest of the keys. Mm -hmm. Right. It's especially on the low stuff. So they'll be playing kind of, one guy will just be playing like a bass pattern while the other guy is kind of wailing cool. on top and he'll just be getting that honking weird low sound. <laughs> Um, I, mentioned, I mentioned Colin Stetson, I guess. He's great. His solo stuff is super cool. Shabaka Hutchings is a great player. He plays with a group, The Comet is Coming, among other things. Okay. There's this tune called Trust in the Life Force of the Deep Mystery. Or no, maybe, yeah, no, The Summon the Fire is the tune. The, the album is Trust in the Life Force of the Deep Mystery. I love it. The wow. tune is Summon the Fire. And um, I got a listener question about this, and someone was like, hey, what's he doing to get this sound? I tried to recreate it. And again, this is the Strong Songs method where I was like, okay, I think I hear what he's doing. There's this kind of tape delay. There's this distortion. So I kind of tried to figure it out. And it was so cool because he's doing something I think you guys identified a few times. Last time you talked you talked about this is that he is like made the horn into this integral part of the band. And yeah. it's this just yes. driving like, like the song, it's called Summon the Fire. And it just feels like this pulsing, like ritual, oh, you know? Yes. And he's playing with this kind of like distorted saxophone. And it's just this, there's this burning intensity to what he's doing. He's not doing a lot of really like high stuff or screaming. Mm. It's just 
the way he's playing, it has this vote that vocal Energy. quality and this yep. just pulsing, pushing wow. vibe. It's so so cool. I'm he's here a for great, that. yeah, a great player. So that's Shabaka Hutchings, really good oh, player. Oh man, I am on board. Um, and then I'll mention one guy. This is a jazz player from uh, one of your countrymen from Australia, who is a, a buddy of mine that I went to school with, named Troy Roberts. Okay, he okay. plays with his group. His some of his, his one of his groups is called New Jive, but he also just plays under his own name. Troy is, I went to school with a lot of really good jazz players. Troy is on a totally other level. He's like one of the guys I went to school with who is now like one of the cats like in the world. Every time I see him playing, it's, he is ridiculously good. And a lot of what he plays is just, it's jazz. And I know you guys are more amenable to jazz saxophone. Mm. Mm. But it's a lot of funky stuff. A lot of just very advanced, beautiful music. And that guy can really play. And I'm sure more folks who listen um, down in Australia are aware of him just because he's a pretty well-known saxophone player. But man, he's amazing. And anyone who hasn't heard him, I should check him out. And also he plays live a lot. And you could go go catch a, a live show. So that's Troy Roberts. He's a great player too. Amazing. Well, um, I think you know one of the things about that's so appealing about the saxophone is its versatility. So, I see you're in your beautiful studio there. Could you, and there's a saxophone <laughs> <laughs> just next to you. Could there you is. could you possibly demonstrate for us on the show some of the different voices that a saxophone can have? Because and and how it can be such a versatile instrument that goes from that wailing hip thrusting um, solo through to just a soft and delicate kind of a, a, a sound. Like, what is it that, can you just demonstrate the different ways that the saxophone can bring that different texture? Sure. Let me Thank you. Sound. Yes. I'm here for this. This, yeah, this is a treat. Let's see. I guess the way I think about the saxophone is you can have, there's there's a lot of different sounds that it can get, but there's kind of two primary modes for the saxophone. There's the really bright, intense sound that you get more of a pop thing. And that's what you'll hear, you know, kind of up in the register on tenor. If you put enough reverb on that and kind of process it in a certain oh, yeah. way, you know, you get that kind of more what? Baker Streety pop 80s sound. And I should say I'm playing on a hard rubber mouthpiece. Any saxophone players out there will know that does make a difference in your sound. If you're really going mm. for that pop thing, that, you know, kind of 80s metal. hard saxophone sound, you typically play on a metal mouthpiece. Mm. Those are not as in fashion now. Almost everyone I know plays a hard rubber mouthpiece because you can get a lot of different sounds out of them. But that sound has never quite been my thing, so I'm kind of doing my best Mm. approximation of it here. And then that also gets into the really high stuff. That kind of really saxophone, like uh, Saturday Night Live, Lenny Pickett, that sort of sound. Yeah, yeah. That's also, like, not totally my style, but that stuff, when you're playing a really, you know, tight metal mouthpiece, you can really pop that stuff out and get a sort of intense sound. The exact opposite of that is more the Ben Webster, Stan Getz sound that's called a subtone. And that's when you take less of the reed in your mouth and you you allow some air to get in around it. And that sounds a little more like this. Okay. You know, so very, it's, it's, very it's quite, different kind of a and sound. And quite breathy. Very breathy. You kind of allow your breath to get through it. And again, that's kind of the power of wind instruments in general, mm. is that because you're using your wind, they can be so expressive because it's just like your voice. I mean, it's really an externalized voice box. Um, I've been yeah, learning true. how to sing the last few years, and it's really interesting as a saxophonist 
figuring out how to sing because it's basically like if you took a saxophone a saxophone and you turned it inside out and like ran it into your body that's kind of that's kind of what your voice is like the body of the horn is your body and then your your sort of vocal folds are the reed and then yeah, yeah. your mouth is kind of the mouthpiece. So if you blew into your mouth and down past your vocal cords and out through your body, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. kind of what you're doing on a saxophone, right? It's like a reverse thing. So it's, I love it. it's very much like a human voice. It's yeah. structured in the same way. And I think that gives it that vocal quality. I think a big thing on the sax, too, is it's a very bendy instrument. It's not quite, you know, a fretless instrument. Mm. But I've heard a mm. teacher of mine would be like, you know, saxophone is basically oh, I fretless. Yeah, and that's a big, and that's something that gives it a lot of its voice. The higher you get, especially, you can start bending your notes around and playing a B. You can play a lot of different things on a B. Like you can kind of just start to slide around on that, and that is, I think, that also gives it a big part of its um, sort of vocal quality. And that's also something that if you hear someone who's like, not saying I'm like the greatest sax player ever or anything, but if you hear someone who's kind of a beginner or they're not really that great, and frankly, some saxophone solos on hit records are played by people who are kind of just some guy they hired, like who's kind of okay. <laughs> yep. You won't hear that yep. much of that kind of confident voice yeah. and that resonance, mm. you know, that singing quality because they're just not quite as proficient on the instrument and as a result you get pitch issues and you get just kind of a thin sound it doesn't ah. have that sort of singing vocal quality that you get when you listen to someone like Sonny Rollins or John Coltrane or Michael Brecker someone who really has a full command and confidence on the instrument mm. yeah well um, on the previous on the previous saxophone episode I described the sax as often being as an agent of chaos can you kind of show us what <laughs> what I'm talking what I meant there like how how the yeah. sax can be used like that chaotic sound it can be overblown and there's a lot of ways that you can kind of break the instrument um you can play multiphonic stuff on it for sure let's see if I can do some multiphonics There's one. So that's oh. two notes happening at the same time. It's wow. funny. They're hard to isolate and they're hard to hold, but I'm getting some of them sort of. Yeah, but it's, um, it's, it's and crazy. It's literally two notes at the same time. Wonderfully unhinged. It is. And the reed is vibrating between two different notes. It's kind of hard to do it on purpose. Um, yeah. If you're... If you've played a lot of saxophone, you get used to voicing, it's called, you voice the note in a certain way, and that gets it to, you know, come out in tune. And that you use your voice to kind of bend the note like I was doing. But uh-huh. you, you develop a kind of strong saxophone voice where actually a lot of times, um, I've taught a lot of beginners, beginners can get multiphonics on the saxophone like no one's business because they have a completely <laughs> unformed voice and embouchure. So they just blow yeah. into it. And yep. the first thing that comes out is this horrible sounding multiphonic as the reed tries to vibrate between two different <laughs> notes. So wow. if you're going for that kind of, you know, like that kind Wild. of free <laughs> yeah. jazz yeah. madness, yeah. Yes. You, if exactly. you overblow the horn and especially do split fingerings where you're picking up a key in the middle of the fingering, <sighs> that pops the whole thing out of gear in a way that causes those kind of really high overtones to, to pop out. Because the saxophone, like I mentioned overtones before, a big part of that sort of thick you know, voicey sound comes from the overtones, from the conical bore. Mm. If you straightened out this tenor saxophone, it'd be a cone, right? Like it's, yeah. it's thinner here at the top yep. and then it becomes a big bell at the bottom. And it just happens yep. to curve because they curve it. Though there are straight saxophones. Um, Rasan Roland Kirk would play them. They're huge and weird. Um, so the, the bore gives you an overtone series that gives you a lot of different notes within each note. <laughs> So those are all fingering the same note. That's the lowest yeah. note on the horn at B flat popping up through the overtone cycle on the horn. Wow. And that's kind of the key to the sound of the saxophone is that there are all these different overtones going, which is basically a higher frequency that's happening at the same time as your fundamental frequency. So you get this big fat sound with a lot of rich overtones, especially if you have a player who has mastered their overtones and controls the horn. And then when you start messing with it, popping the thing out of gear, splitting fingerings, jumping out to really high notes all at once, ripping out low notes, blowing so hard that the reed almost collapses on itself, you get those really chaotic sounds. But you know, and then cold 
Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders and a lot of those guys in that sort of new thing era in the 60s were experimenting with the really chaotic, you know, free jazz. Ornette Coleman, another example of just, mm. you know, the, the saxophone was really used as that specifically to be an agent of chaos in yeah. that style of music. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. I, my mind is slightly blown um, by what, <laughs> what you've just stepped us through. And I guess in the 60s, you're talking about it was that free jazz, chaos, voice, mm-hmm. expression, all of that thing. And then at somewhere along, you know, soon after that, I got born. And then as I came up in the 80s, it, sax seemed to get sexy. And I know we covered that off, but what, what, what happened in that transition in the way the sax was being used from that expressive, um, multi-voiced, bombastic almost instrument into the Mm -hmm. 80s what what happened i think that i mean i think that at the time i don't think that the saxophone was seen as cheesy in the way that it is i think that it was earnestly seen as sexy and that's because i think it was you know typically this it's a very sensual instrument like we've talked about so it was kind of the logical conclusion that if you look at what 80s pop was doing in general with just Mm. the way it was depicting emotion and sexuality and all of that of course the sax is going to become this super glossy super reverby super smooth and beautiful thing i mean this is also the rise of smooth jazz yeah and i think that all kind of happened at the same time just as part of a broader musical evolution Mm. and that was just the role of the saxophone and then it really fell out of fashion i think so to get back to the guitar theory i have let me put my sax down um the guitar theory that i have is that i think the guitars run a kind of interesting parallel track to the saxophone in that the guitar was the dominant solo instrument through the 80s and actually beyond and that was kind of as the saxophone was starting to fall out of fashion guitar gods you know eddie van halen whoever like that the whole slash like that whole thing yeah and like the it was the scene as a really sexy thing like a guy with no shirt you know playing a guitar and really wailing (laughs) and if you listen to slash play slash is actually from guns and roses a really interesting example of a very lyrical guitarist some of the sax music you guys were listening to is also very lyrical yeah and while sax can have that powerful heat thing it can be this beautiful lyrical instrument in the way that a guitar also can be if it's played a certain way mm. and i think that's actually a, a great thing about slash people think of him as this kind of rocking riff guy but he really could make the guitar sing yeah. anyway that's mm. a separate separate conversation mm. yeah um so i think that it kind of it fell out of fashion and One reason for that might be because there was no real room for saxophone in grunge music. Yeah. I think that when grunge happened in the 90s, grunge repurposed the guitar rock band into something very, very different. And in grunge, typically speaking, speaking very broadly here, like guitar solos of the type that we're talking about, Joe Satriati, Mm. you know, Ingrid Malmsteen, that was seen as the corniest, worst thing. And it was like, no, 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 yeah, none of that. Guitar is just a textural instrument. You know, look at the way that Kurt Cobain played guitar. He's an amazing guitar player and really inventive player, Mm. but it was all textural. It was all like Mm. these beautiful kind of ideas and these chord progressions. And that's what it was a lot of the time. And then even a band like Soundgarden, there's a lot of riffs, but not that much guitar soling you get your yeah. your occasional it's sonic guitar wizardry it's sonic wizardry and right. less guitar wankery yeah right and the guitar <laughs> just kind of survived that transition and mm. found a role in that new kind of band and then really kind of increasingly got phased out i mean there's always yeah. been guitar music but there's definitely a period in the kind of 2010s where there just wasn't a lot of guitar anywhere mm. and it's kind of having a bit of a comeback now it's kind mm. of hard to keep track of trends like that oh god the saxophone yeah. really just didn't have a place in the 90s yeah. in in rock and roll music yeah. it just yep. was gone because if like guitar solos were too much yeah. then sax was way too much yes. and then i know there are some <laughs> grunge bands that had a sax player or whatever but like mm. you know the closest thing you had was like leroy moore in dave matthews band which yeah. was more of the jam yep. band thing yeah totally different thing and seen as kind yeah, of really cringe grunge. to use the modern yeah. parlance yeah. right yeah. by grunge musicians yeah so i think it's it's interesting to look at those two instruments as both having been at the forefront they were like the solo instrument you know all through the jazz era saxophone was the solo instrument it was the thing that the coolest guy in the band would get up and play saxophone Mm -hmm. and then eventually it kind of fell out of fashion and it kind of did so because it was so cool it was so undeniable it was so unmistakable that it the minute there wasn't room for it, there really wasn't room for it because saxophone takes up a lot of room. And a solo guitar is kind of the same way. Like a big, juicy guitar solo, like that takes up a lot of space. When that happens in a song, it's like happening. You're getting a guitar solo. And (laughs) the minute the music has to... 
Right. When it becomes more ironic and it backs off and it's kind of more subtle, there's just not a lot of space for that. So the two instruments kind of followed similar trajectories. And I've always thought that's interesting, especially yeah, as that is interesting. You know, guitar is probably my next best instrument after saxophone. And I know a lot of great guitarists who were saxophonists first. My, my guitar teacher was a saxophonist all through high school. It's kind of a common a common pairing, and they're complementary instruments in a lot of ways. So it's interesting to look at that trajectory too, I think. Fascinating. And, and it's funny that you should be talking about um, guitar and, and saxophone kind of simultaneously here because you are a multi-instrumentalist. And, and I'm an artist, uh, like a visual artist, as I'm more of a painter. Mm. But I find that like learning, say, uh, a skill in, in say, ceramics or um, just learning a new material or something like that really actually helps to inform my artistic practice as a painter. So yeah. as a verse, as a multi-instrumentalist yourself, do you have like a fundamental instrument that you go back to? I mean, you play drums and bass and guitar and sax and all kinds of Keys. different instruments. Um, is there a fundamental instrument that you play or, or how does being such a multi-instrumentalist affect you as a musician as a whole? It's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's one I think about a lot, I guess, and I... I don't know. I'm more of a multi-instrumentalist every day because I'm learning these new instruments and forcing myself to kind of live with being a mediocre beginner. You know, like I play drums and I practice them a lot, but I'm not that good at drums. And um, and sometimes that can be very frustrating just because as a saxophonist, I've played with some amazing musicians and I went to school with amazing musicians and really played some music at very, very high levels and know the thrill of doing that. Mm. And, you know, as a guitarist, I'm, I can't really do that. But um, then part of me also loves that limitation. So mm. saxophone will always be the closest to my just musical expressive core. Yeah. Um, when I play saxophone, you know, I'm, I'm, my chops are kind of rusty now. Like, I, I, I'm not in a regular practice. I think if you gave me a couple weeks and I was really practicing again, it would start to really connect again to that just feeling of hearing something and playing it and, mm. like, finding that voice, making that voice become real in a way that mm. I think every musician seeks to do. It's kind of the goal of technique is that you learn how to play the instrument so that you remove all the barriers between what you hear in your mind's ear and then what comes out. Um, it's why singers are so amazing and interesting to me because singing just happens. You, it is just yeah. direct. You yeah. have a direct connection, which has its own challenges and, and makes it hard to sing in some ways, um, especially singing, you know, jazz and improvising. But, you know, it, it is uh, really interesting and freeing in a lot of ways. So I still feel that way on the saxophone. But I find now that I love the challenge. I mean, I've loved the challenge of really getting serious about guitar, practicing every day and finding mm -hmm. a way to reconnect that same voice. It's the same voice in my head that hears what I'm going to play and that wants to make the music become real. But now it has to go through this new prism. It has to go through my fingers mm. on the fretboard and I have to know what I'm playing. But the more I practice and the more I get comfortable with things, the more I start to feel that connection strengthening. And that I do think, I don't know if there's a direct thing of, you know, oh, well, my saxophone playing is improved because of guitar playing. Like I'm sure in some ways mm. it is. I learned a song on guitar I know it on sax, you know, mm. I've learned it. Mm. But I just think there's a kind of, I at least get a lot of pleasure out of exploring new ways to connect that inner voice with the outer world. And um, yeah. at least right now it's been on been on guitar. So I find that to be really cool. But I I'm totally agree with you about learning other disciplines and the ways that those can inform wh whatever your, your kind of primary discipline is. Certainly, I mean, I found as a video game critic, being a musician gave me a, I think, very interesting perspective on video games because there are some similarities between video games and music, and In that that, I think, that there's a structure to them that then you can work, uh, that then you can then kind of improvise around. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You got it. I mean, it's that video a video game space, especially you know, well, any video game space is a composed space that you're then given freedom to to improvise with them. And obviously it's different in some ways, a lot of ways than mm. a jazz standard, but it's similar in some ways too. And I think that I spent so much of my um, education in my life just hanging out inside of those songs and spending time moving within them and learning to understand that it's not totally free. You know, jazz improvisation isn't just play whatever you want. There are all uh -huh. these rules and all uh -huh. of these parameters. It's a framework. That then playing video games is... 
there's just a totally natural similarity there where I'm like, well, yeah, this is really similar. I'm in this space and there are these limited parameters and I'm kind of pushing the boundaries and seeing what I can do. And um, it feels conversational in the same way that jazz can. So obviously they're very, very different in a mm. lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. But I do find that, and I don't even make video games, so it's not like I've learned to make games. But I think that in exploring them critically, I came to appreciate new things about music and it was a really interesting sort of cross-media experience. But as a parallel, it would be it'd be kind of like not it'd be if you're a musician that doesn't write songs, but you play songs and you do improvise, that would be kind of like if mm-hmm. you it, kind of like the parallel between not making video games, but playing them, I suppose. Yes. And I think there's a performance element to playing video games that is unique among any artistic medium. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what makes them so fascinating is that they are something that you, the audience, perform a, a, a role in, a really essential yeah. role. You're the player. And that's just not, that's what makes them unique. It's the most interesting thing about games. Of course it is. You play them. That's what makes them different from movies, right? Yeah. And so I think that the fact that you're in this almost player-composer, like a game developer is in an almost player-composer relationship with the player is so interesting. And I mean, we're only beginning to see how many different cool things uh, a, a clever developer can do with that relationship. So that's just a, a really cool thing that I think I at least always just felt totally innate to me coming coming to writing about video games as a musician. Well, plus you play video games and you play music, so there's that too. Yes, yeah, no, you, exactly. <laughs> it's not a coincidence that you use the same word. Kirk, you are a, a fascinating uh, intellectual smart individual uh i I i've found this a thrilling conversation um you have helped me and and the dial on my saxophone um appreciation is turning so it was it was aversion to tolerance and you know what there's a couple things like your your enthusiasm and excitement and knowledge is infectious like just listening to you speak seeing your face and just the way you um have passion for music and for the saxophone is infectious it's hard not to be affected Mm -hmm. by that so thank you the just seeing you pleasure i'm I'm happy to help like seeing you play some of that stuff uh even though we are remote but just seeing you play and hearing that is is amazing so um i love it but the, the thing that stuck with me the link, you may not have met, realized how important it was to me, but just hearing you talk about the transition of the saxophone from the 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s into the 80s, and then grunge music not having space for saxophone and then onwards from there, it's kind of helped place that missing link of why I felt a certain way about the saxophone and how I can link that through. And it's okay to like the saxophone now. Like, you know, it's, it it's a wonderful <laughs> thrilling (laughs) instrument so thanks so much and i guess just in way of summary is there any story is there any fact is there any topic is there any saxophone things that you would like to leave us with i'll leave you with a story i guess there are so many other saxophonists that i wrote down and could recommend but we would be here all day but i will tell you a story and it's about it's kind of it was a moment that i really understand understood the power of the saxophone in live music this was in San Francisco. I got a random call. I don't even remember why. And it was for this touring band that I didn't know. I think they're from Germany or something. And they were on tour in America. And they were coming through uh, San Francisco. They were going to be playing, I believe, at the Rickshaw Stop, which I don't know if that's still a club there. It's a pretty cool club. And they were going to be playing. And they needed a sax solo for this one song. And you know, a friend of a friend was like, oh, I know my friend Kirk lives there. He can do it. So I get the call. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, come on in and we'll do the thing. I come in and it's this kind of dance electronic group. And this is probably in like the year 2013, 2012. So it's kind of dance stuff, you know, like Euro synth uh, singer, couple, couple singers. I'm not sure what their vibe is. I don't know how popular they are or whatever. So I come in for sound check. They seem cool. They're wearing tight pants. They set my mic up. They're like, okay, you're just going to come out on this one song and it's going to be like, you know, whatever, E minor. So just play. And I'm like, really? Okay. And they play the thing and I'm just like, hell yeah, I can play on it. This is like super, whatever, very easy, groovy song. I can just blow. Um, ton of reverb on the saxophone and everything. So cut to that night. I'm wearing my whatever black gig clothes. They're all dressed to the nine. They look amazing. There's neon lights all over the stage. The place is absolutely packed. I, I don't even remember the name of this band, but I, apparently they had a following. So they're pretty big and I'm kind of nervous because I'm like, oh, okay, so this is a thing. The crowd is loving it. Everybody's dancing. And I'm like, I hope I'm 
I hope this works. Like, I hope it sounds okay. <laughs> I hope that people don't hate it. And then it comes time for my song and I go out and I walk on stage with a saxophone. And this is in 2013, which I think was the beginning of the kind of transition into the new era where the saxophone is more uh-huh. uh, accepted by people. Mm. And there, and this kind of roar goes through the crowd that there is just someone on stage with a saxophone. And then the cool. song starts and I start playing my solo and like it just builds and people are going yes. absolutely nuts. And I'm loving it and like getting really into it and kind of wailing. And yes. you know, there are things you can do on saxophone in this situation. I'm like, just go to a high note and just hold it. It's not hard to oh, do. Yeah. yeah. But if you just go and like just hold that for a while, <laughs> yeah. people that brought the house down. nuts. Yes. And it was this feeling of just, I was, it made me really appreciate the power of the instrument that I was yeah. playing. And it was the same power. It was the kitsch. It was the the thing that made it seem cheesy in the 80s yeah. was the same power that was making it blow this club up and have this, like this just great moment for the audience and for me and for us, like sharing this energy together. And it was because of that long lineage and even because a little bit of the ironic yep. appreciation for just this, this kind of vulnerable human sound that it was making when mm. I was playing. So it was an incredible moment. I still think about it, even though I don't remember the name of the band, just because it made me realize, oh, like... People really like the saxophone again, and that's pretty cool because yes. I play saxophones. So. Yes, <laughs> so it, was, it was a very, awesome. a very cool moment. A transcendent moment. I love it. It really was. It really was. Yep. I was happy to to get to experience it. That's brilliant, wow. Kirk. Thanks so much. We are so thankful that you agreed to come on and help oh, me my in my journey of saxophone. So <laughs> we wish you all the success for Strong Songs and all your projects. Cheers, um, we guys. would love to keep in touch. And um, thanks again for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, man, I'm still buzzing from the fact that we got to chat with Kirk Hamilton. And I'm still buzzing just from his incredible ability to break down what's going on inside a song and inside a sound. Yeah, yeah. uh, Leon, I'm ready to embrace the saxophone in a new way. So thank you to you. And thank you to oh, our yeah. friend, Kirk Hamilton. Well, look, let me let me tell you. I think I've already got an idea of what we should call this episode. I think. All right. Instead of like sax- saxophobia, maybe we should call it saxophilia. Oh. The love of saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I, I just, I, maybe. Listeners, if you're if you're listening to this and the title of the episode was Saxophilia, you'll know I went along with the Adrian's consensus. Ah. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Well, <laughs> listen, please make sure you take a listen to Kirk's work and support him where you can. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash strong songs, or you can visit strongsongspodcast.com and you'll find all you need to know. And so there was so much in that conversation from the epic sax solos to the conceptual underpinning of why sax is amazing uh, to those live sax demos. Oh, oh so good. He played for it. It was incredible. What a treat. Yeah. What a treat. Yeah, totally. So good from beginning to end. So look, listeners, thank you for journeying along my path to sax redemption. Uh, remember, hit us up on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, um, and the others. Send us an email at supersonicchat at gmail.com. And dear listener, one of the many joys we have in life is to make this podcast. And if you love to have it in your ears, express that love by telling a friend and getting them on board this supersonic train of goodness. But while you're at it, tune into Strong Songs. You may even find yourself appreciating songs you thought you hated. Definitely. Thank you, listeners. That was a wonderful episode of Supersonic Chat. Supersonic Chat.